Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy there, my good friends. Welcome back, and thank you for coming back today. It comes as no surprise to most of us that the word powwow is mostly associated with the Native American ritual of feasting, dance, and fellowship among friends. While the origin of the word itself is mysterious, to say the least, it in reality has more to do with the European black magic than it does with Native Americans, a good example of what I mean existed in 1928, York, Pennsylvania. Powwow meant to the locals a method of faith healing and or the applying of curses on one's enemies. Not much different than what is today called voodoo. Powwowers, also called witchers, were called when one was sick or when luck turned bad. Now folks, this was taken as serious as the known facts of science are today. It was very serious business. There were charms carried and rituals performed to stop bleeding, cure whooping cough, or to stem off illnesses, just like to name a few. Come on in, take a load off, and give me a listen as I tell you a tale of black magic and murder taking place in the northern Appalachians of Pennsylvania. At the beginning of the last century, most of York County's residents came from Pennsylvania Dutch stock. They'd kept a few things from the old country, including a healthy belief in superstition. Now that's what we've got in common with our cousins across the pond. Powwow isn't really witchcraft in the modern sense. It's more like a collection of folk medicine and superstition all rolled together. It's not organized or pagan. In fact, it's 
Many of the ritual cures explicitly echo the structure of Christian prayers and call on God or Jesus for aid. It's surprising how widespread belief in powwow was in the 1920s. Few people were probably all in on the practice, but the rituals and recipes were so simple and easy they had a way of working themselves into every part of life. And if they were good enough for Granny, well, they're probably good enough for you and I. It was estimated that half of York County believed in witchcraft in some form or another. In downtown York, there was a witcher on every corner promising miracle cures and selling all kinds of good luck charms. The practice of powwow was widely denounced by Christians who rejected it as satanic, by doctors who saw it as ignorant quackery, or by modernists who just plain were embarrassed by the whole blatant ignorance of it all. But the authorities generally wouldn't bother the witchers unless they were blatantly committing fraud. Out in the country, witchers and powwowers served their communities as witch doctors. They would typically learn a trade from a family member, but in a pinch they would also learn from a book. most popular book was John George Homan's The Long Lost Friend. The Long Lost Friend was practically a witch and cookbook. It contained a prayer to ward off heart attacks, a recipe for a plaster to cure ulcers, and instructions for crafting a charm to protect you from wolves. It also promised you to, that no harm could come to you as long as you carried the book on your person. I guess that was a bonus. Enter one Nelson Remeyer. He was one of the best powwowers out there. If you needed somebody to cure the pox, spruce up your fruit trees with a spell, or make you a good luck charm, well, he was your man. Like most witchers, he didn't ask for payment for his services. That didn't mean you weren't supposed to pay a witcher. You might slip him a few bucks or a chicken for helping, or maybe a helping hand around his farm after the spell kicked in and things turned around for you. Maybe that's what really got Oscar Glattfelter out to Raymeyer Holler on Thanksgiving afternoon. Not neighborly concern, but a nagging medical condition in need of a good witching, or a wilted tree that maybe a crop that needed a good spell put on it. It was November 29, 1928, Thanksgiving Day, and Oscar Glattfelter was working. Yeah, that's the life of a farmer. They're always doing chores. There's always chores to do, animals to feed, crops to harvest, firewood to chop, and fences to mend. The farm itself just didn't give a hoot that it was a holiday for everybody else, so you worked. And I guess what else was Oscar going to do? There wasn't any football games on TV or even the TV to watch them on. Oscar had finished his chores by noon, so he decided to pay a social call on his friend Nelson Raymeyer. The old coop was probably fine, but it couldn't hurt to drop by and check. As he approached the Raymeyer farm, Oscar heard the loud braying of a mule. So he poked his head in the barn to see why it was kicking up such a fuss, only to discover that the animal was about starving. In fact, all the animals are starving, which meant Nelson hadn't fed them for at least a day or two. That was concerning. Oscar rushed to the main house to make sure Nelson Raymire was all right. Well, he was not all right. In fact, he was dead. Oscar ran to his friend Dave Vanover and then the two of them ran over to Spangler Hillebrand's place to use his newfangled phone. 
Somebody had to call the police after all. Nelson Raymire just wasn't dead. He had been murdered. York County's police force rushed to Raymire Holler. Well, I guess as fast as one could rush back in the 1920s to take in the grisly sight. The witcher Raymire was in the kitchen by the stove on the floor. He had been hog-tied and laid face down with his head resting in a pile of kindling. His face was a bloody mess. He was almost unrecognizable. At some point, his killer had covered him with a mattress and an old blanket and then set him on fire. Fire had just burned out, but it had done its damage. Most of the body was badly burned, in some places down to the bone. The medical examiner would later discover Nelson had two severe skull fractures and a collapsed lung from a horrible beating. Signs of a violent struggle were everywhere. The kitchen floor was covered with ashes and embers from the fire. A basin filled with bloody water sat next to the stove with a stump of a half-smoked cigar floating in it. An oil lamp was nearby with its top screwed off. There was a discarded flashlight and a snap-off of a halter on the floor. A kitchen chair had been smashed to pieces and further... Other furniture was clearly thrown about the place. Last time anybody could remember seeing old Nelson alive was on Tuesday, November 27th, a couple of days earlier, when he had visited a cousin to borrow some buckwheat, which he probably was going to use to work out a spell on something or another. The state of the farm suggested that he'd probably been attacked and killed that night. Chores had clearly been neglected for a day, but not more than two. At least the widow Alice Raymire was able to provide a solid lead. On Monday night, she'd been visited by two young men in the middle of the night. They wanted to know where Nelson was, but she had no idea. She suggested that if Nelson wasn't out plowing his fields, then maybe he was down at the Gladfelter farm plowing them a Gladfelter. After having a good laugh over that, they then left. Alice didn't think to ask for their names. She'd washed her hands of Nelson and powwow a long time ago and had no desire to get sucked back into that mess. She thought Nelson was a lunatic. But she recognized one of the men as somebody who used to live nearby years ago. She gave the police a physical description. Thin and gangly, with a long hooked nose and a prominent Adam's apple. All she could say about the other fellow was that he was short. Something about the almost ritualistic disposal of the corpse led the police to suspect that witchcraft might be involved. So they consulted Charles W. Dice, one of the more honest witchers in the region, to see if he had any insights. Mr. Dice didn't. The description of Alice Raymire's late-night visitors did ring a bell, though. It sounded like John Blymire, a wandering laborer and part-time powwower in his own right. That meant the other fellow was probably Blymire's constant shadow, John Curry. So, who the heck were these guys? Well, in 1895, John Blymire was born into a long and illustrious family of farmers and, of course, witchers. Great-grandfather Jacob was the seventh son of the seventh son, born at the exact moment a legendary witcher had died and known as a mighty witcher. Grandfather Andrew and Father Emmanuel were powerful powwowers too, but they only had a fraction of the great Jacob's powers. Young John was obsessed with powwow. 
religiously poring over his copy of The Long Lost Friend and assisting his father and grandfather with rituals whenever he could. He also claimed to have visions and prophetic dreams, but he never quite had the touch of his forefathers. In the community, John developed a reputation as the crazy one and was ostracized. His teachers at school thought he might be slow-witted or feeble-minded, so nobody really missed him when he dropped out at the age 13 to take a job at Bob Rose Cigar Factory. And to top it all off, John had a terrible work ethic. He would only show up to work when he felt like it, and he was constantly ditching work to perform ritual cures for the unfortunate souls who needed help of a witcher and couldn't afford anybody better. Factory management only put up with his constant unplanned absences because he had such a hard he was such a hard worker when he was there. His nervous energy meant that he worked as hard as three less motivated men when he was there. But in nineteen ten something snapped. John had constant headaches and couldn't sleep or eat. He lost weight and his skin hung on him like a sharp aid dog. Sometimes he looked more like a scarecrow than a man. He started twitching became paranoid and depressed all at the same time. Worst of all, his magic powers, which were he barely had to begin with, vanished overnight. He couldn't perform the simplest cure, and what a few patients he had left just up and left him. Today it's clear John Blymeyer was suffering from severe malnutrition and clinical depression, and his doctor tried to tell him that. But John being the witcher, that he was, he knew better. He thought he'd been hatched. Now, obviously, if magic can be used to help, it can also be used to harm. That's the dark side of witching. Practitioners of the dark arts studied for business tomes like the sixth and seventh book of Moses and they learned the rituals that could summon demons call down curses and destroy their enemies and now one of these hexers was picking on John Blymeyer there was ways of lifting a hex but first John had to find out who had placed it on him but John and the Blymeyers couldn't figure out who the tormentor was no matter what spells they performed Meanwhile, the curse ruined John's life. He bounced from job to job and barely had enough money to scrape by. The lack of funds kept him bouncing from rooming house to rooming house, though he also kept moving in the hopes that the hex could find him by following him. Every spare cent, every free minute was spent consulting other local witchers to see if they could maybe find out who the hexer was, and it was to absolutely no avail. He started traveling further away to find other witchers. He made a 160-mile round trip to reading twice a week for six months to sit with the famous doctor, or Professor Gensler was his name. The professor tried to lift the curse with a series of custom-crafted charms and a few drops of dove's blood, actually administered orally, of course. That treatment failed, too, but the professor attributed to John's lack of faith as the cause of it failing. John started to suspect the professor was a fraud. Well, I don't know what would on earth would make him think that after only six months of trying. But then, in 1917, the hex just disappeared. 
the cause. The cause is obvious, of course. John had fallen in love with Lily Hollowell, and his, who was his landlord's daughter, and his depression eased. But whatever the reason, the two young lovers were married, and his new father-in-law helped John get a steady job at a lumber mill. He started sleeping and putting on weight, and his magic powers even started to come back. He even consulted a local doctor, no, a real one, not a witch doctor, who lent him some medical text and tried to make him understand that his curse was nothing more than depression. Things started looking up for John Blymeyer. Then John and Lily's first child died after only five weeks. Their second child was born prematurely and died three days later. John started to spiral again, losing his job and all of his powwows powers all over again. Of course, the hex was back. This time, John decided the regular witching wasn't enough and began consulting black magic witchers. He spent a small fortune on necromancy, voodoo, and Kabbalah. Once again, all of that failed. In 1923, John started consulting with York's most notorious black magic witcher, Dr., and I use the term loosely, Andrew C. Leinert. Leinert was more con man folk healer, a huckster who had mastered the art of stringing patients along with empty techniques for as long as he could milk them of all their money. His go-to move was suggesting that the source of the hex was someone very close to the victim thereby driving a wedge between his patients and the loved ones trying to break him loose from Dr. Leonard's clutches. That move had gotten the doctor into serious trouble in the last one or two occasions when the patient murdered her sleeping husband was one of them, but he still used it, and he used it on John Blybeyer. John began acting cold and distant toward Lily, and his father-in-law noticed. Knowing John's state of mind and Leonard's reputation, he started to fear for his daughter's safety. The Holloways and had John involuntarily committed to a state home for the insane in a Harrisburg lunatic asylum with a diagnosis of psychoneurosis with a severe case of the witchcraft delusion. Forty-eight days later, John escaped the asylum by calmly walking out the front door during a baseball game between the inmates and sticking out his thumb to hitch a ride. No attempt was made to recapture him because the asylum was overcrowded and underfunded. Now, John and Lily divorced, and the Holloways warned him to stay away from their daughter. John returned to his series of odd jobs and his never-ending quest to find out who put the hex on him. Now, who is John Curry? Well... He was six years old when his father died. In 1920, his mother soon remarried Alexander McLean, an ill-tempered drunk who dealt out daily beatings in a disorderly fashion to his stepson, John. Understandably, John preferred to stay away from home as much as humanly possible. Unfortunately, he also preferred to stay away from school as much as humanly possible, too. John's perpetual truancy eventually got his stepfather dragged into court. And with this came more beatings, which got even worse. In February 1927, John Curry walked into a recruiting office and enlisted into the U.S. Army. He was only 13 years old, but apparently looked very mature for his age. He was sent to Fort Meade for basic training and sent his first paycheck home to his mother. 
Miss McLean came, became unglued when she realized that her son had go, gone and joined the Army. So she called the Army in a panic to tell him that he was only 13. John was then dishonorably discharged and on a train back to York. He couldn't go back to school, so he took a job working at the Bobbero Cigar Factory. He found himself mysteriously drawn to one of the other workers, a twiggy, twitching fellow who claimed to have black magic powers. And that was how John Curry met John Blymeyer. John had lived in York for most of his life and had never been exposed to witching. How? I, I don't know. Everybody else had, but it fascinated him. Maybe black magic cure, curses could explain why his life was so miserable, too. Soon, the now 14-year-old and the 33-year-old Blymeyer were inseparable. In effort to, you know, to in effect, John and, uh, became Blymeyer's apprentice, even though the witcher could barely manage the witch anymore. But that never stopped him before, did it? While working at the cigar factory, the witcher Blymeyer and John Curry met a local truck driver, Milton Hess. In a casual conversation, it came up that Blymeyer was a witcher. That caught Hess's attention, because he was cursed too, of course. Funny how things like this can drag people into a mess so easily, isn't it? Milton Hess was not a truck driver by choice. He had once been a prosperous farmer. But in recent years, his crops had failed, his cattle died off, and his chickens disappeared. His wife, Alice, was listless and lethargic. Milton always felt like he was being boiled alive and could barely work or sleep. Ultimately, the Hesses had to sell off large parts of their farm and take jobs in town. Milton worked as a truck driver at the Pennsylvania Tool Manufacturing Company. His sons worked for a nearby lumber mill. The explanation for their woes was obvious, of course. The Hess family had been hexed. Unlike John Blymeyer, they knew exactly who was behind their curse, Milton's sister-in-law, Ida. At some point, Milton's brother died, and he and Ida had a property dispute over the road that connected the two properties. Milton cut off Ida's access to the road, so Ida retaliated by building a new road and cutting off Milton's access to one to the old one. And then, of course, hired a black magic witcher to throw a hex on them all. This hex was highly effective. Milton's finances were destroyed, and he couldn't afford to hire a real witcher to undo the hex, but he could afford to hire John Blymeyer, who by this time looked pale as a ghost and skinny as a rail again. John Blymeyer and John Curry made a visit to the Hess farm, and well, they confirmed it was indeed hexed. Blymeyer offered to lift the hex for $40, but gladly accepted the meager $10 that the Hess family could scrape together in such short notice. The duo made some weird observations, gave Milton Hess a good luck charm to neutralize all the hexes and retired to Blymeyer's boarding house to divine the true name of the witcher who was tormenting his new friends. It just keeps getting better, don't it? Blymeyer hadn't forgotten his own hex either. Over the summer, he scraped together enough money to visit one of the most feared local witchers, Nellie Noel, the river witch of Berrietta. It was money well spent because Nellie Noel delivered results. If that be the case, why did he go to her the first? I don't know. Over six sessions, she provided a slow dribble of ever more specific information about Blymeyer's tormentor. First, of course, 
She confirmed that Blymire was indeed under a hex. Then she revealed the curse had been thrust upon him by a man, an old man who lived in the country and who Blymire had known since childhood. Finally, she revealed it was Nelson Raymire. John Blymire couldn't believe her. The Ray, Raymire and Blymire families had known each other for generations, and he knew the Raymires didn't practice black magic witchery. The two families traded witching services as a form of professional courtesy. As a child, John had even picked up a few pennies digging potatoes in the old man's farm. There was no way Nelson Raymire was the source of the hex. That's when Nellie Knoll told John to take a dollar bill out of his pocket and put it in his left hand. Then she told him to flip it into his right palm, portrait side up. John did as she was instructed and then gasped in horror. There, where George Washington should have been, was the face of Nelson Raymire staring back at him. The river witch was right. For years, Nelson Raymire had been hoodwinking everybody, convincing everybody he was their true friend, while in reality he had been the blackest of black witches. But now that he had been exposed, the curse could be broken. First, Blymire needed to get Raymire's copy of the long-lost friend, or, barring that, a lock of his hair. Whatever he managed to get, he needed to bury in an eight-foot-deep hole behind the barn. Then, and only then, would John Blymire finally be free from the Raymire hex. For the first time in years, John Blymire could see an end to his torment, but then reality set in. How could he ever hope to get hold of Raymire's spellbook or hair? John had been wasting away for two decades, both physically and spiritually, while Nelson was still stronger than Ox. It seemed impossible, and, folks, it still keeps getting worse. In mid-November, John Blymire had a vision. It was all obvious. Raymire was not just the source of his problems. The old man must have hexed John Curry and Milton Hess, too. The powers that be had brought them together. Individually, they were powerless, but if they worked together, they could all be saved. He explained his plan to the others. John Curry was on board right off, and then on, he was on board for anything. The Hess family was not so easily convinced because they had never heard of Nelson Raymire. Blymire then explained that the information came directly from the Weaver Witch of Marietta and that it was all it took. The Hesses were on board. For ten days, John Blymire meditated, preparing himself for the mystic battle of wills that would soon come. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Hello, everyone. This is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. If you grew up watching the classic television show Unsolved Mysteries, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I profile a new unsolved murder or missing persons case and share all the baffling details. Afterward, I provide my own personal analysis and theories about what might have happened. This is a show for true crime buffs who are fascinated by cold cases and love to discuss them and pick them apart in an attempt to figure out the truth. So be sure to check out our podcast to learn about some truly bizarre unsolved mysteries where the trail went cold.
On Sunday, November 25th, John Blymeyer told the Hess family that it was time was right and they should all leave immediately to confront the black magic witcher, Raymeyer. The Hesses were all for it, but, well, their oldest son, Clayton, needed the car to work all night, and it was a long way to go in the dark. Maybe they could go tomorrow instead. Blymeyer sighed and told them where to pick him up the following night, and on Monday, November 26th, the Hess family car picked up Blymeyer and John Curry shortly before dark, after dark. The family consisted of wife Alice, 22-year-old son Clayton, and his wife Edna, and 18-year-old Wilbert, their other son. As they made the long drive through the woods, Wilbert had an attack of nerves, or maybe just good sense, and was let out of the car so he could walk home. Shortly thereafter, Clayton dropped Blymeyer and Curry off at the edge of Rymeyer Holler. The two men trudged through the fields to the main house and pounded on the door. Nobody answered. Then they walked over to Alice's cottage to ask where her husband was, only to discover she didn't know and didn't care. She hadn't seen him for four days and didn't want to see him then. Now discouraged, they started back to the road, but somebody noticed a light at the house and rushed back. Nelson Raymeyer heard them pounding on the door and came down to let them in. Blymeyer asked if Raymeyer still had a copy of The Long Lost Friend. Raymeyer said, why, yes, I do. All good so far, right? Now all Blymeyer needed to do was get him to hand over the book, but then he lost control of the conversation. It's been my experience that that's the kind of thing that happens when two lunatics try to converse. Somebody's going to lose control of something. Every time he tried to mount a psychic assault, Nelson Raymeyer would steer the conversation over to unrelated topics like farming or the weather or socialism even, which he supported greatly. He was either completely ignorant as to why they woke him up in the middle of the night or deliberately trying to out-lunatic a bunch of lunatics. Nelson Raymeyer had been a witcher for all his life and had to know that if late-night visits weren't for a cure, then they had to be up to no good. His next move was just about to prove that one. Just after midnight, Nelson finally said that he was really needed to get some sleep and told Blymeyer and Curry that they could sleep on the couch. Nelson slept like a baby, knowing that they both were too messed up to attempt anything during the night. In the morning, he cooked them a nice breakfast and sent them on their way. It was just plain humiliating to both of them. While they stood and hitched their way back to York, they decided that if they couldn't beat Nelson physically or psychically, they would have to beat him physically. When they reached town, they made a beeline for Schwartz's hardware store to buy some rope and what they could use to tie up old man Raymeyer, and then made their way to the Hess farm again, where they told the family that this time one of the Hesses was going to have to make an effort if they wanted the Hex took care of. Blymeyer and Curry wanted the young, strong Clayton to join him. Clayton, who was apparently no lunatic, respectfully declined. He couldn't afford him to miss a day's work, and besides, he had a family and a two-year-old son he needed to take care of. He'd gladly give him a ride, though. All night then, they would take Wilbert. That would, that would work. Wilbert didn't want to go either. He was a good boy, and all of his magic talk scared him. 
Then his mother broke into tears, moaning and wailing and wondering what would become of the family if this terrible hex couldn't be lifted. And that's all it took. Wilbert fell for it, hook, line, and sinker, and decided to go for the good of the family. On Tuesday night, all three of them showed up at Nelson's house about 9.30 again. They pounded on the door, but there was no answer. Blymeyer started yelling loudly, which brought Raymeyer to the window to ask, well, what in the heck they're doing? Blymeyer claimed to have lost his copy of the long-lost friend on his previous visit and asked if he could come inside to look for it. Well, Nelson <laughs> opened the door and let him in because he realized the importance of the book. And he was down there in his one-piece long underwear, and uh, he just watched them as they looked. Blymeyer and his young assistants, well, they was all the way in the kitchen and demanded that Raymeyer turn over his copy of the long-lost friend. Raymeyer, realizing that something was up, glared at him and then said that it was too cold. He threw on a sweater, grabbed some firewood from outside, and started lighting the stove while Blymeyer started coming unglued. Looks like they were back to the lunatic contest. Blymeyer repeatedly demanded Raymeyer hand over the book, and Nelson calmly responded that he had no idea what Blymeyer was yammering about. He suggested if Blymeyer had lost something, maybe it had dropped behind the couch last night when he was sleeping. Blymeyer walked over to the couch and made a show of searching behind it, and then suddenly jumped on Raymeyer and forced him to the floor. Curry had and Hess grabbed ropes and tried to hog-tie the man. Nelson, being strong as an ox, fought like a lion, but even he couldn't take all three men at the same time. The old man was brought to his knees and still asked him what they really wanted. With that, Blymeyer snapped, told him to shut up, and started beating him over the head with the first thing he could find, which was a piece of firewood. Curry and Hess followed up by doing the same thing. When that didn't Knocked the fight out of the old man, Blymeyer picked up a heavy kitchen wooden chair and smashed it over his face, then calmed Nelson right down. He told the men that he had, he'd uh, let them have the book so they'd back off. Nelson then fumbled in his coat and threw his wallet at Blymeyer's chest. Blymeyer screamed that he wasn't there for Raymeyer's pocketbook and then started beating him right back up where he left off to start with. Soon Curry and Hess were holding Raymeyer down on the ground while Blymeyer slipped a noose around his neck. As the old man drifted in and out of consciousness, Curry repeatedly beat him over the head with a piece of firewood while Blymeyer and Hess took turns kicking him in the stomach and ribs. After an hour of endless beating, Nelson Raymeyer groaned one last time and died. Blymeyer was elated and yelled at the top of his lungs, Thank God, the witch is dead. <sighs> you can't make this stuff up, folks. The three lunatics then ransacked the house looking for Raymeyer's copy of the long-lost friend, but couldn't find it. Eventually, they realized it must be in the basement, where Nelson did most of his powwowing. But they were too scared to go down there, even though the witcher was dead. Obviously, they hadn't thought it through very much, because if something had happened to Nelson Raymeyer, he couldn't possibly have a copy of the very book that kept bad things from happening to him, could he? They also scanned about to see if they could find the riches Raymeyer was supposed to have, but they, all they found was an old tin with $2.80 in it, which they split three ways. <laughs> that was about $14.39 each in today's money. In the end, Blymeyer declared that they 
didn't need the book after all. Since Raymire was dead, all of his hexes were now broken. To him, life was going to be good again. I guess in all the excitement of looking forward to reaping the benefits of a hex-free life, they forgot what they were doing was illegal to say the least, and somebody was going to come looking for who did it. It was about that time that that bit of information did settle in, and they realized that they had to cover the tracks. Uh, burning down the house seemed to be like the best option, so it would look like an accident and destroy all the evidence. John Curry took the lead on this one, pouring water all over everything in the belief that it would wash away fingerprints. I guess they all must have forgot that water also puts out fire. Nonetheless, he threw a mattress and a blanket over the poor old man, doused him in kerosene from a nearby oil lamp, and lit it up. The three witch tamers ran outside and to watch from a safe distance. They peered out from behind the barn and feared they'd see the old man dancing in the flames. Then they realized that the fire was going out. They started toward the house again to stoke it back up, but were surprised by a car coming down the road and ran. As they walked back to the York, they or back into York in the dark, Blymire made them all swear that they'd never tell another soul what had happened that night. Shortly after 1.30 a.m., Wilbert Hess got back to the family farm and told everybody what happened. They didn't seem to be at all concerned. Clayton told his brother not to worry, just to read his Bible and pray. And if the Lord sees fit, he'll take care of you. Yes, folks, again, you can't make this stuff up. Back at his boarding house, Blymeyer threw his bloody pants and jacket into fire. Curry's parents barely even realized he'd been gone. On Wednesday, November 28th, Blymire showed up at the Hess family farm and told the family he wanted to return to Raymire Hollow and finish burning down the house. The Hesses thought that it was a terrible idea and refused to help. They told Blymire to relax, put it all behind him, and have a happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, he did. Dinner tasted like manna from heaven, and that night... He slept hex-free like a baby for the first time in many years. Of course, he didn't know that the York police were already looking for him. Thanks to a tip from a fellow witcher, Charles W. Dice, from whom he'd been poaching patients. But the police had a problem. They didn't know what Blymire looked like. But they did know John Curry, who was one of the York's most notorious juvenile delinquents, and exactly where to find him at his stepfather's house at 136 East Princess Street. That's where they found him just after midnight and brought him in for questioning. Between the police threatening him with prison and his stepfather threatening him with the worst beating he'd ever had, Curry cracked like an egg about to fry it over easy. He confessed to everything and gave the authorities everything else they asked for, including John Blymire's current address. An hour later, police dragged John Blymire out of his bed and down to the police station. At first, the sleepy Blymire arrogantly denied everything, but when he was told Curry had confessed, his whole attitude changed. He admitted his involvement in the murder and also gave up Wilbert Hess, who hadn't even been on the radar. Hess was grabbed the following morning when he showed up for work at a lumber yard in Grantley. When the story broke, it, it went national. 
why wouldn't it? I mean, after all, the day after Thanksgiving is usually a slow news day, and even if it wasn't, the story, <laughs> it had everything it took to make a good headline. Terror on Thanksgiving and unrepentant killer, insular backwoods types, witchcraft of modern America, senseless depravity in a small town that was somehow both remote and yet easily reachable from every large city in the East Coast. The upcoming trial promised to be a media circus covered by every major news outlet. Now, the good people of York weren't going to have any of that. The townspeople were in no way eager to have York portrayed as a superstitious backwater hayseed plow town full of lunatics. They realized that they couldn't stop the press from coming, but they did everything they could to make the job as hard as it possibly could. They restricted access to the courthouse and hired additional bailiffs to throw the trespassers out. They outlawed photography inside the courthouse and rejected applicants to run telegraph and telephone lines to the building and they scheduled the upcoming trials to take place in courtroom number two the smallest one in the building when the trials got underway in early january they made an even bolder move the judge and the prosecutor declared that witchcraft had nothing to do with this trial it was a simple case of felony murder during a robbery even if the robbers had only managed to get two dollars and eighty cents Can't be sure why they did all of that, but it sure looks like it was a conspiracy to try to make the trial less sensational. The judge and the prosecutor were both transplants, and they have not realized widespread belief in witchcraft was throughout York County. They may have been trying to secure the death penalty under, or undercut a potential insanity defense, and they may have decided that the Motive was irrelevant since every other aspect of the crime was clearly premeditated. Or they may have done all the above. Who knows? The trials opened on January 7, 1929. Blymary and Curry were represented by indigent counsel. The extended Hess clan, now without the Hex looming over them, managed to scrape together enough money to hire the best criminal lawyer in the country, Harvey A. Gross, to represent Wilbur the gross made a, mansion, a motion that the cases be tried separately, which was, amazingly enough, granted. Blymeyer was first up. The district attorney maintained that the sole motive for the murder was robbery, even though Raymeyer's were dirt poor and the robbers had only made off with $3 almost. He completely forgot to introduce any evidence of, of this motive until he was made to do so by the judge. Detective Robert Keach testified in their confessions, Blymeyer and Curry claimed that the robbery was the sole motivation for the murder, which was strange because those same confessions definitely mentioned witchcraft. The defense argued that Blymeyer was insane. Now we're getting somewhere. They tried to introduce evidence about witchcraft again and again, but each time they were shot down by the district attorney and the judge. So much for getting somewhere, I guess. Then, during cross-examination of Clayton Hess, the district attorney thoughtlessly asked what Blymeyer had told the Hess family when he first returned from the murder. Clayton answered honestly. Blymeyer said, I got the witch. The court erupted, and the DA realized that he had just put his foot in his mouth, only to be razzed by the judge for walking right into that one. Fortunately for the prosecution, the judge decided to adjourn the court early that day, and the next day Clayton's testimony was so heavily restricted that he 
was a useless witness for either side. When the jury went to deliberate, the judge instructed them that belief in witchcraft and similar delusions did not constitute insanity or qualify the defendant for leniency. The verdict came quickly, as a matter of fact, in just five minutes, guilty of murder in first degree with a sentence of life imprisonment. Curry's trial was next. He was tried as an adult because, well, he was 14 after all. His defense argued that a lifetime of abuse had rendered Curry incapable of distinguishing right from wrong. That went over just as well as Blymeyer's defense, and he got the same sentence to go along with it. When the foreman read the verdict, Curry turned pale as a sheet. His mother fell on the floor crying uncontrollably and finally fainted. There's no record of what his stepfather did, but it's probably better than what he would have got if he'd have went home. Hess's private attorney actually managed to get some witchcraft introduced into the trial, coming at it with some finesse rather than head-on. He deployed an unusual defense, making his client look like an unwilling participant, a mama's boy who had been chosen by his family to take the fall for a heinous crime. This defense worked, at least to an extent, Hess was found guilty of second-degree murder with a sentence of 10 to 20 years. In the aftermath of the murder in York County Medical Society decided to step up its campaign against powwow and other folk remedies. Stepping it up apparently meant writing stern editorials and encouraging the police to do something about it without actually doing anything about it. They did manage to convinced the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to send an undercover agent to investigate local witchers suspected of fraud. His arrival was trumpeted in all the papers, which pretty much defeated the purpose. No prosecutions or charges were ever made or brought. In 1934, John Curry's life sentence was commuted to 20 years in view of his young age. He was paroled on June 29, 1939. During Curry's stay in prison, his cellmate, an art forger, had given him painting lessons, and Curry turned out to be a great artist, actually. He was drafted into the Army in 1943 and worked as a cartographer in the European theater, helping to draft maps used to plan D-Day. After the war, he was awarded a Bronze Star and a scholarship to the École de Beaux Arts in Paris. He couldn't attend because it would have violated the terms of his parole. Now imagine that. He's over there fighting, but he can't go to school there. After finally getting out of the service, he raised turkeys and became a local renowned portrait painter. And he died in 1963 of a sudden heart attack. Wilbert Hess, he was paroled on June 16, 1939. Ironically, though, he'd just been a reluctant participant and received the highest sen- or lightest sentence. He served just as much time in jail as Curry did. He became a respectable citizen and an electroplater in Teledyne McKay and tried to put the murder behind him. He died in 1979. But John Blymeyer, well, was thrown into Pennsylvania's most secure prison, Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. Needless to say that he wasn't going to walk out of that front door. His sentence was two commuted on February 9, 1953, and he was paroled shortly after. He worked off and on as a janitor and a security guard, and he died in 1972. Over the years, 
the Raymeyer house fell into disrepair, but in 2007, his great-grandson decided to restore it to its original state in 1928. It reopened as a tourist attraction in 2013, and as far as I can tell, it's still open today. Belief in powwow still hadn't completely died out, though. There are far fewer openly practicing witches today. Powwow's thinking is still alive as well, or is alive and well there. It's just that when the residents of York go looking for a cure, they're less likely to reach for witches or dove's blood than they used to be. I hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe, please. Please go over to our Patreon page at patreon.com and search Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Give it a look over. Or you can go to Facebook group, Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast, where the, we can discuss everything that we want to discuss, including Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend, and I'll see you then.